From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. DACA is the federal program that allows undocumented young people to go to school or work without being deported. Now, all applications are on hold because of a court case. At this point in life, I'm just waiting on DACA. That's like my only, only real hope. We'll meet a young woman who says without DACA, she won't have the career she dreams of. Then, fresh veggies, juicing, yoga, art, and even a DJ? The Mobetta Green Marketplace is not your typical farmer's market. It's inspiring healthy habits and change, one food desert at a time. I thought, well, I want to be some kind of solution to this problem. And maybe it creates a bit of inspiration, you know, to make changes in your life. Hi, I'm Jasmine Liddington, and I donated my car to Colorado Public Radio. My car got hit, and ultimately it was totaled. When I realized that the car wasn't going to be fixed or covered, I just decided that what would be a higher purpose for this car as opposed to parting it out for small amounts of money myself or just getting rid of it, the best decision was to donate it to an organization that I appreciate. It's easy to donate your car at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. First-time applicants for the program known as DACA are awaiting a decision from the Federal Court of Appeals. DACA allows immigrants who come to the U.S. as children to work or go to college without the threat of deportation, at least temporarily. Flora Camarena came to the U.S. from the state of Michoacan in Mexico when she was a baby. As she started planning to go to college, she applied for DACA. I never even got a letter from anybody saying that it was actually placed on hold. It was just the news that were going around that made me realize that that's why my application was taking longer and why I hadn't heard anything back from them. The news that a 2021 case out of Texas had challenged the legality of DACA. The case is now being appealed. Camarena is just beginning her first year at Metro State University of Denver. Even though she's undocumented, she was able to qualify for in-state tuition. She's not eligible for a formal work-study program, but the school will pay her to do work using money from organizations that help undocumented immigrants. I already knew applying that it was a friendly college that I could apply to and they would satisfy my needs and what I want to get out of college. Getting through college is one thing, but without DACA, Camarena won't be able to get a work permit, so her options will be limited. At this point in life, I'm just waiting on DACA. That's like my only only real hope. Really, I don't really have anything else like planned. She says she'll keep hoping DACA comes through for her. A recent article for the news organization Chalkbeat profiled Camarena. Reporter Yesenia Robles wrote the story and spoke with CPR's Andrea Dukakis. Yesenia, welcome. Thank you. We're going to talk about the court case in a minute, but tell us a bit about Flor Camarena and what she doesn't have access to that those with DACA would. Flor's a student who just graduated from high school this spring here in Denver. If she had DACA with a work authorization, that 
could make her eligible to do work study or or be able to do other jobs to get money for college. It could also make her eligible for more forms of financial aid. She's also interested in being eligible to do things like internships, apprenticeships. Um, Even in high school, she already missed out on some of those opportunities because she didn't have work authorization in this country. And as we talked with her um, about earlier, this is also a matter of a job later on. What would that mean for her if she doesn't have DACA? Yeah, she thought about this as she was starting college. Um, She had always wanted to be a detective. It was what she thought she would study. She thought she would go into college to study criminal justice. But as she was thinking you know, about the possibility of not getting DACA or another form of legal status in this country. She worried that even with DACA, that that might not be a legal or permanent enough status to be able to get a job in law enforcement. So that's why she changed her major. And now she's going to study business in college instead, hoping that that would be something that she could use at her parents' restaurant to help her parents grow their business. President Trump tried to end DACA a few years ago. That was when applications were first put on hold, then the Supreme Court restored it. What's the court case that has once again stalled DACA? So it's a case that's brought by the states led by Texas, and they're making a different argument. It began moving through the system after the Supreme Court restored DACA, This case argues that DACA was unconstitutional from the beginning, that it was created without going through the correct legal or administrative procedures. And they argue that it's harming their states. A federal judge has initially agreed with them, and that put a stop to processing new applications. The judge acknowledging that this program has a big impact for a lot of people allowed the government to continue to process renewals. So they've stopped new applications, but renewals are continuing for now. And that's because you have to renew your DACA status every two years. That's right. Yeah. So now the the Biden administration has appealed that decision and the appeals court heard arguments last month in, in July So it's the fifth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals out of New Orleans. They're expected to make a decision this fall. Advocates aren't hopeful. It's a three-judge panel. Two of them are appointees of, of former President Trump, and that's the status of things now. So Floor is eligible for DACA under the law and might be able to get it if the court case is resolved in favor of DACA. I understand that others who came to the U.S. as young kids might not be eligible. Why are their cases different? When DACA was created in 2012, there was this whole set of rules about who was eligible. And those rules haven't like evolved or changed throughout the years. For example, among the rules, applicants had to be in the U.S. before 2007. And the point there was the government didn't want people you know, across the world to hear about the announcement of the creation of DACA and think they could come now to the U.S. and apply for DACA. They had to have already been here five years prior to that announcement. 
But since we're talking about young people born outside of the U.S. who then would have immigrated here before 2007, you know, there's just a smaller number of people who apply to those criteria. If you were born after 2007, if you came to the U.S. after 2007, it's just limiting the number of people who would even be eligible. There are estimates that there are about 8,000 K-12 through students in Colorado that don't have legal status. In general, though, can you explain how DACA has changed the lives for people who are part of the program? So we looked at, at Chalkbeat, we looked at the impact specifically through education. So it's really hard to track because school districts, of course, don't track the legal status of their students. But estimates... And the study that was done out of, you know, with some researchers out of Harvard does show that the ability to have DACA status helped more students continue education. So among the other requirements for DACA is that when you apply, you have to either be in school at the time or you had to have already graduated from high school, had to have gotten to the military. There's those kind of requirements also. So if um, a student was in high school and unsure if they should graduate or if there was a point, DACA status seems to have given them some hope um, that there was a point. So more of them anecdotally seem to have graduated high school. More of them seem to have found a reason to go to college. One of the people we talked to was um, a woman here in Colorado who was in college when she was able to get DACA. And at the time that she was getting the status, she had already considered that she was going to drop out of college because she was paying such high amounts out of pocket. And then she wondered, you know, without legal status, whether there'd be a point to it. And then after having DACA, it just like renewed her her commitment to college, her ability to, it opened up more doors to help her get through college. So it was a motivating factor, the study showed, for some of these students. A lot of people are in favor of DACA. There are many who aren't. And just to push back a bit, what is the argument for those who don't think DACA should have ever been created? I I guess it's the typical anti-immigration arguments, like in this court case, the states are arguing that that they're being harmed by you know people who are undocumented there's those who fear that giving this status or other status would create an influx of even more people coming into the country and they think that would be a bad thing Yesenia thanks for joining us thanks Yesenia Robley is a reporter for Chalkbeat a news organization that covers education her recent article profiled Flora Camarena, whose DACA application is stalled due to a federal court case. The case challenged the legality of the program. DACA grants young people who come to the U.S. as children temporary protection from deportation so they may attend college and work. Robles spoke with CPR's Andrea Dukakis. Rental scammers make a tough housing market tougher. The thieves dupe people into paying what they think are security deposits or rent. CPR justice reporter Lucretia Wembley found out that homeowners are being scammed too. 
Jessica Puzio bought a $400,000 house in one of Denver's most desirable neighborhoods last year. It's in Lohi, the Lower Highlands, west of downtown. But last fall, something happened. It was an elderly couple who came to my door, um, knocked on it, and said they wanted to see the rental. I told them that I had no idea what they were talking about. This couple had seen a Craigslist ad, a one-bedroom listed for thousands of dollars less than other places in the area. Then when we got into early 2022, things really started ramping up, and I started getting a lot more phone calls, emails, and people just showing up. One guy showed up with a U-Haul full of his things and his dog in the front seat. He'd paid first month's rent and security deposit to someone who had lifted pictures of Puzio's place from Zillow. He was one of several people who showed up to her house hopeful and left realizing they'd been scammed. My heart really broke for him. He seemed like he was pretty embarrassed over the situation, but, um, you know, really, it's... You know, these people took advantage of him and there's really no reason for embarrassment. It's not an uncommon situation. The Colorado Poverty Law Project, a group of local attorneys who help low-income people fight housing injustice, sees new rent scam victims once every couple months. The nonprofit's founder, Tom Snyder, said the folks they represented had few options for recourse. Oftentimes, the fact pattern is where a house is on a lockbox. The tenant will still um, show up at the house and, you know, do an in-person inspection uh, along with the person who represents themselves as the owner. Somehow, some way, has gotten a code to that lockbox. And you don't know, you know, was it, a, was, it a, was it an inside job, you know, maintenance person? Was it just a contractor? Now, here's the thing I don't want to admit. It happened to me. And it's embarrassing. This spring, I got a job at CPR News and started looking for housing in Denver. I was living in reasonably priced Pittsburgh and had to immediately revise my housing budget. Then, I found this beautiful, affordable place in Lohi. It was perfect. I emailed back and forth with someone posing as Jessica Puzio. The person who was putting it for rent um, was also impersonating me, had uh, registered a Gmail account um, that was nearly identical to my full name, but just had one extra letter in it. They even gave me tenant references, and those references actually responded to my inquiries. So I put down nearly $700 for a security deposit. But something kept eating at me. I knew it was too good to be true. I found a phone number listed for Jessica Puzio on Zillow and called it, Something I should have done in the first place. That's how I met the real Jessica, who informed me that, yes, I had been scammed. Just the heartache that I felt for everybody who was being victimized at the time, and I felt so helpless for them. How pervasive are rental scams in Colorado? That's hard to pin down. Law enforcement agencies don't track rental scams routinely. The Denver Police Department says it's extremely hard to catch scammers who use burner accounts fake email addresses, and social media handles. The state attorney general runs a website where Coloradans can report fraud. Here's AG Phil Weiser in a statement recorded for CPR. We've seen 82 rental scam complaints come in through Stop Fraud Colorado since the start of 2021. A new law signed in May expands the statutory list of state laws allowing the attorney general to bring civil and criminal enforcement related to housing. It also creates a fair housing unit within the Department of Law. Weiser says he hopes it will help stop some of the scams. As for Puzio, she spent hours scrolling through ads on Craigslist for her home and flagging them. The calls and emails eventually stopped, but still, she says, It could happen to any of us. Yes, it absolutely can. So renters, take it from me. Watch for red flags and don't send any money before seeing a place. Even then, 
check to make sure property owners are who they say they are. Lucretia Wembley, CPR News. Fresh veggies and juices, yoga, art, and even a DJ? The Mo Better Green Marketplace is not your typical farmer's market. For just over a decade now, it's been a staple in some of Metro Denver's most underserved communities that have been designated as food deserts. Some of the produce that we have today, we have collard greens, chard, lemon cucumbers, greens, beans, squash, plums, beets, scallions, and kale today. That's Bryce King talking with me on a recent weekend. He helps run the Mo Better Green Marketplace. All are welcome to partake in what's clearly been a labor of love for the market's matriarch, his mother, Beverly Grant. The lifelong Denverite who grew up in Park Hill is here to tell us about the first full-scale market since the COVID-19 pandemic shut it down in 2020. Beverly, welcome to Colorado Matters. Thank you so much for this opportunity, Chandra. So exciting to see you here in our CPR studios. I have been following you and your work for years, ever since I moved to Colorado 10 years ago. That's amazing. So live music and a DJ at a farmer's market, that just sounds totally fun. So how would you describe the Mo Better Green Marketplace to someone who's never been? Well, I would say it's a triple F event for food folks and fun. Mm. And I always offer no cost active living engagement. So we have yoga, Tai Chi and line dancing that we offer as ways for people to have fun and engage. And then we also we're kind of known for our juicing. So we always have a yes, live juicing going on. I do remember on. you juicing a lot. Yes, yes. And um, I don't do as many cooking demos, you know, because that's just a lot of work in a pop-up format. Mm -hmm. And so when we're able to reconvene at the Dahlia Campus for Health and Well-Being in Park Hill, we'll be utilizing that beautiful uh, teaching kitchen. So I just can't get over the fact that I could do the Cupid Shuffle and also get like tomatoes at the same place. That sounds so much fun. And you totally can. <laughs> That's what makes Mo Better Green Marketplace so unique. Um, so speaking of unique, the name is unique. Can you tell us a little bit about how you came up with the name? Absolutely. The Mo Better Green part of the name is really about the personal adopting of improved lifestyles, the way we eat, um, learning about our environment and how we can have less impact on our environment through our, our daily living activities. Also, the founding tenets for the marketplace are food literacy, environmental stewardship, and social responsibility. And so over my 12 years of existence, I've blended a myriad of relationships around each of those tenants. And then the official legal name of the business is R&B's More Better Green Marketplace, mm -hmm. which the R is for my son, Reese, who is now an ancestor. And then the B's, that's Bryce, Blair, and Beverly. So it was really a family And those are your name. children? Yes. Your other children? My other two children, mm -hmm. yes. And so... Um, a lot of times people say, is it rhythm and blues? And I was like, that's a very good guess, but no. 
And we just abbreviated it to Mo Better Green Marketplace. As you alluded to, your focus is to bring fresh fruits and vegetables to areas that are food deserts. And for those who aren't familiar with the term, it describes communities where people have limited access to healthy and affordable food. Tell us more about your mission and the communities you serve. Absolutely. Well, when I began uh, 12 years ago, it was kind of at the beginning of a wave of gentrification that was coming through the Northeast Denver Corridor. And in that process, you know, it was more and more realized how lacking it is in food infrastructure. Mm -hmm. Now, because I'm a Denver native, I know of a time when it used to be different, where we did have neighborhood smaller stores and grocery outlets. But as time has moved on, a lot of those languished and don't exist anymore and hence left these food desert neighborhoods where folk are traveling, you know, a few miles to get to Mm. a decent outlet. So then I thought, well, I want to be some kind of solution to this problem. So this pop-up framework is what I adopted because I can literally come to the people. Mm. I can meet them on a parking lot. We can maybe get permits and utilize parts of streets. You know, we can come up with quote unquote ideal locations. I love using parks because then I could leverage the green space to create active living. When we look at the health statistics of folk that live in food desert neighborhoods, typically It's high in diabetes, Mm. cardiac and pulmonary um, Mm. kinds of uh, conditions. And a lot of it is due to lack of access to to good fresh foods and also not moving. Now, that's another part of an active living equation that I've fully adopted because a typical farmer's market season for me might be be about 18 weeks Mm -hmm. so my goal was was to think about well if for 18 weeks I can engage the community in things like yoga tai chi zumba I even know pilates instructors and other forms of movement even line dancing yeah you know because people will say no 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 but yes to line dancing so I'm all down for the wobble at any given moment (laughs) I love it. I love it. And Miss Barbara King is a woman that I've partnered with this year to to do the line dancing. Mm-hmm. And um, I love her spirit. She she has a great gentle way, but very effervescent um, for getting people engaged. And she'll teach you the steps if you don't know. And then you can fall right in line with the rest of them. It sounds like your goal is to expose people to opportunities, like you said, to move, to be active and maybe spark something that will continue through well beyond the time of the, the farmer's market. That is the hope. And also connecting the engagers that partner with me throughout the season 
offer, you know, classes and engagement opportunities after the season ends. So I'm hoping folk build those relationships and leverage the marketplace to do that. And maybe it creates a just a bit of inspiration, Mm -hmm. you know, to make changes in your life. So it sounds like your philosophy embodies that statement, meet people where they are. Indeed, indeed it does. And you have to start with where they are to build resonance with them, to f- to figure out where's a good place to start. So when people visit me at the markets a lot of time, they'll say, oh my God, I got to change my diet. I went to the doctor and I got all this mm-hmm. news. And I say, well, guess what? It's easy donuts. We can do this one sip, one bite at a time. I've partnered with Denver Botanic Gardens. Their Chatfield Farm is one of our sourcers. And then Mobetta Green has a multi-plot urban farm in three small locations. And then um, we have a walk-up, drive-up farm stand at the Dahlia Campus for Health and Well-Being. And it's completely youth run. We literally just launched that. Wow. And so that has become a part of my summer youth employment. And let me tell you, those youth really take to learning how to set up the displays, learning some of the product knowledge to share with folk about what vegetables are in inventory. And I love that many of them want to take foods home to Mm. experiment cooking with, especially things that they hadn't tried before, like kohlrabi, for example. It's a a vegetable kind of in the brassica family, and it it looks almost like a planet and sort of, or like a beet turnip combination. It's a strange looking vegetable, but it has great flavor. Well, this is just, truly sounds like a community project. You're engaging youth, you're getting people together, and you're also promoting health and wellness all in one. Yes. And one other engagement that we do, we create a community farm day at our at our community farm in the coal neighborhood. Mm. And as a matter of fact, this past Saturday, we just had one and we did jam making. Now, what was really special about this particular jam making is we have a cherry tree at that location. We harvested all those sour cherries and I paired them with apricots that I sourced from the Western Slope here in Colorado. Wow. And we made some amazing jam. Uh, also, uh, as I recall, in many of these community work days, there also sometimes is a meal shared at the end. Oh, always, not sometimes. Oh, always. Always. And we had a local business called Speak Life. Chef Lee Bailey was present and the food that was featured was more of a Jamaican fare. And so every community farm day, we do have a a chef. We also have a DJ because we got to have music. Music is medicine. And it music is, you know, such a perfect backdrop to any engagement. It really does bring people together. uh, Just having people hear the music and kind of you know, clap or stomp their foot or sing along. It kind of brings people together who don't necessarily know each other. 
you're right and then um and it crosses generations like when we had um this past community farm day we literally had from small children into the grandma age they're present just sharing together eating together and then taking turns uh having a, a a chance to work on the jam i'm speaking with beverly grant founder of the mo better green marketplace it's a weekly farmers market that brings fresh fruits veggies and wellness activities to areas deemed food deserts in denver Our conversation continues after the break with how she's working to ease the anxiety and stress of life these days. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Shakespeare reminds us that a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. The same holds for the western Colorado town of Montrose or Montrose or Montrose. Once simply known as the New Town, it sprang up in the late 1800s to supply nearby mining communities. It's also gone by other names, Uncompagre Junction, Ute City, Pomona, Dad Town. One early resident, an avid reader who loved the classics, suggested the town take the name of one of his favorite characters in literature, a legendary Scottish nobleman from a novel by Sir Walter Scott. But since the town's incorporation in 1882, one question persists. How do you pronounce the name? For the answer, we asked Mayor Pro Tem Barbara Bynum. Montrose, not Montrose. A Colorado postcard from CPR, with the support of Dazzle Jazz, celebrating 25 years. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Beverly Grant is a Denver native and well-known and well-respected health and wellness guru in Colorado. She's the founder of the Mo Better Green Marketplace. Its mission is to get fresh fruits and veggies to people living in food deserts in Denver. But it also works to ease their anxiety and create community, too. Nefertiri Smith is a youth supervisor at the market. And I think it's a great networking opportunity. Um, I've known Miss Bev for two years. I've worked with them for two years. And I knew her son, Reese, who passed away. And, you know, working with her has been very healing for me. And I think it is for a lot of people in the community. You know, and I think just being able to come out and say, yeah, I can get some, some fresh veggies and fruits and have a good time, dance, and, you know, just be, be alive and be outside is a beautiful thing nowadays. That was Nefertiri Smith, a youth supervisor with Mobetta Green Marketplace. Founder Beverly Grant also works with the Grow House, a nonprofit indoor farm in North Denver, dedicated to food production, food education, and economic opportunity. Let's rejoin my conversation with her now. So I read an article that said for you, farming isn't about sustenance. It's about creating a new economy for those in need. In fact, you said urban farming exists to address food gaps in cities. Please elaborate on that. Absolutely. Well, perfect example, our farm in the Cole neighborhood, which is another East Denver um, food desert neighborhood. At that location, our farm is roughly about 4,000 square feet, you know, kind of equivalent to the size of a house lot. And we've been farming there since about 2015. 
And what I strive to do is create that location as a place where people can come and learn to garden or grow things. Also, people can come there to help work with us to learn to learn these skills. But also, it's a place in the community where people are seeing how food is really raised and produced. We have chickens there, um, which the kids always get a kick out of chasing them around uh, <laughs> well, and trying I, to pick them up. Exactly. Because when you think about it, if you're a city kid, you just go to what, King Supers and you don't necessarily get the connection of where that food comes from. Right. And then, see, urban farming can serve neighborhoods, you know, that don't have these uh, food access opportunities. And something that a lot of Denver residents are not aware of is they can create their own urban farms at home. We have legislation through city council that was passed back in 2014 via the uh, Residential Sales Act that allows people to grow in their front or backyard and create a point of sale, which means in time, they could create their own farm stands to sell their products. But also there's other legislation that you can pair with that, like the FPA, which is Food Producing Animals. That was passed back in 2011. And what that does is... Now, is that in Colorado or in Denver? In Denver. In Denver, yes. But nationally, many, many cities are creating similar ordinances so that their communities can mobilize around urban farming. And, you know, urban farming does present an opportunity for food production and distribution and access to exist where it had not before. And it can be at the home level, which is really, really key. I should note that Beverly was featured in an article that I wrote for the New York Times in 2020 about the Satya Yoga Collective. And uh, Beverly opened up so much in that article about using yoga to deal with grief. Indeed. Um, Losing your son, Reese. Yes. Can you tell us, like, how are you doing? Well... To be honest, this year is the best I have been Mm. since my tragedy. Um, The month of July is kind of the worst month of the year for me because Mm. the beginning of the month, the first and second, marks his death. Mm -hmm. Then his birthday is the 20th, which um, I, because my son died of a random act of violence, you know, you just don't get resolution for something like that. And so me being able to utilize yoga to help me with mental fogginess, to help me with the pain that was manifesting in my body, a lot of people are not uh, aware that grief causes neck pain, back pain, Mm. headaches. Um, And when you're not in tune with these are side effects of my grief, then, you know, you could go down a rabbit hole of trying to treat yourself with pain remedies, which 
sure will give you some relief, but they don't address the problem Mm -hmm. because the pain and the suffering stem from the loss. And so when this tragedy occurred for me back in 2018, it was kind of crazy timing. June of that year, I had graduated with my yoga teacher training, um, a 200-hour program through Satya. And then my son was taken the very next month. And so I learned firsthand because of practicing yoga in the terrible days. And I was astonished, Chandra, how after a simple yoga practice, I felt integrated. Because when you when you have a catastrophic loss, your your mind, your body, you you're detached mentally, emotionally. Um your adrenal system, you it feels under attack. Mm-hmm. I can remember times to try to have this conversation wouldn't have been possible because I felt like I didn't even have enough breath wow. to uh, carry on a conversation. But when I practiced yoga, it, I felt amazingly better. And so, you know, it was literally learning through doing mm-hmm. that got me here. And the Satya Yoga Cooperative is filled with loving folk that would just come and practice with me at my house. And we should note that it is Denver-based. It is. And uh, Lakshmi Nair is the founder. Um, She's a South Asian woman from India. And I tell you, I, I thank her daily in my ways for introducing these gifts into my life. Um, practicing yoga and nidra, which is a form of meditation, Mm. have really been helpful in helping me to rebuild my strength, my stamina, and just my overall sense of well-being and and being present. What we also covered in that New York Times article that we worked on together is the fact that Satya is trying to diversify yoga, which for those who really studied it, it might even sound funny to say you have to diversify yoga. But tell us about the effort of Satya Yoga to bring more diversity to the practice of yoga in current times. Indeed. Well, most folk, when they hear the word yoga, they think of a yoga studio with <laughs> lots of uh, yoga, very fit Yoga people. pants, for sure. Very expensive yoga pants, for yeah, sure. <laughs> there's that part. But additionally, it has been a, a space where people with privilege were the ones that were engaging in the practice because it's costly to take the classes in those studios. And many uh, community members of color didn't really feel welcome Mm. in those spaces. And so when the yoga is more than a physical engagement, you know, it's a wellness lifestyle. It's a spiritual practice. Mm -hmm. It's a whole being integrative way to 
bring your body relief and balance. And instead of having a brick and mortar studio, our approach has been to go to the people. So for example, at my farmer's markets, those are satya instructors that come and share. And sometimes I'm one of the teachers. And then I've also created yoga in the park engagements in different pocket parks around the city where people just meet up and do the yoga there. Um, One engagement that I'm really uh, excited about, and it's my third year of doing it with an organization called GRASP, which is a youth organization dedicated to serving youth that have gotten in trouble, may have court cases. Mm. Um, Some of them even have ankle monitors, things like that. Wow. And for the past, this will be the third uh, year, um, we, we have been meeting in parks and I'll have anywhere from 18 to over 20 students, you know, and I partnered with a small business called Sound Off. They have the silent disco headphones. Oh my God. (laughs) Pairing that, the headphones with being in the park is a match made in heaven because you are able to block out all the distractions Mm. that are come with just chilling in the park And it does create this sense of going inside. Wow. You know, they play awesome music and um, I love their technology, you know. And so all of the classes that I'm offering this summer, uh, yoga wise, we are partnered with them because it totally ups the game with the whole yoga experience. Now, Beverly, of course, is talking about the Satya Yoga Collective, and that's S-A-T-Y-A. You made me wonder, how do these young people you described to have these challenges, how do how have they responded to the yoga? Well, you know, at first they were kind of snickering like, yeah, right. <laughs> and then once we, you know, added the headphones, then so the music... So you had to kind of cool it up a little bit. Well, yes, and... I know how youth love to run around with either over-the-ear headphones or the ear pods. Mm -hmm. So we got the over-ear headphones, and right away they connect to the music that they hear. Then, do you all play special music for them? Well, I leave it up to sound off because they do such a stellar job. They do so many engagements around our state, like Red Rocks, uh, yoga. They do epic engagements for thousands of people or smaller engagements for little old me. But the bottom line is they really have a mastery over this um, this technology and it has it's making such a positive impact on those that experience it. Wow, that's Wow, that sounds like something to watch. I definitely want to see how that evolves. And I I will add that um, the youth have told me that they feel more at peace or they feel a sense of calm right after a practice, that they enjoy the way they feel in their body. 
Wow. So that's saying something. Well, Beverly, you must be a miracle worker. You got teens doing yoga and also asking for vegetables. Like you should get a Nobel Prize. (laughs) Man. Like I said, health and wellness guru of Colorado. So as we wrap up, back to the Mo Better Green Marketplace. It runs through October. Yes. Uh, Anything you want to tell us about that and what's next? Well, um, I would say please um, look for where we are at any given time on the social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You know, you'll you'll get some of the best that Colorado has to offer in the way of seasonal vegetables and fruits. You'll also get to meet wonderful people. You will get to experience active living if you choose. And there's lots to learn and share, you know, because every one of us is an expert on something. So I like to look at it as a way for people to to share and to give. Thanks, Beverly. Thanks so much for joining us on Colorado Matters. Thank you for having me. What an honor. That was Beverly Grant, the founder and the lifeline of the Mo Better Green Marketplace, a farmer's market which runs weekends through October 1st in Denver communities considered food deserts, including the historic Five Points community, the Dahlia Campus for Health and Well-Being in Park Hill, and the East Denver community of Cole. On the subject of food, the Dutch Stroopwafel is hard to bake and fresh ones are hard to find in the U.S. But CPR's Veronica Penny met a woman who's making them here in Colorado. It's a Wednesday morning at the Cherry Creek Fresh Market in Denver. At the Colorado Stroopwafels booth, Yolanda Schmitz is preparing a fresh Stroopwafel for her first customers of the day. I couldn't find decent Stroopwafels and I baked them myself during COVID and I was thinking, okay, this is so nice, let's share this with the people over here. Schmitz has a tall pot of warm caramel on a counter and a Stroopwafel press. It looks like a big waffle iron. She places a ball of dough on the iron and presses it closed. After about a minute, she pulls out a golden brown wafer the size of a tea saucer. She slices it into two thin halves, spreads a layer of buttery caramel on them and places them back together then hands it all over to Jar Ready in a big sleeve of parchment paper. Very crispy, very nice, very fresh. (laughs) Good. Stroopwafel, which translates to syrup waffle, were invented over 200 years ago in the Dutch city of Gouda. In the Netherlands, stores carry packaged Stroopwafel, but there are also vendors who sell the cookie fresh at outdoor markets. And it reminds me, although, to my youth, and that is why I I like them. It's this, this feeling as a child that I had these fresh ones on the market. Here in the United States, Colorado Stroopwafels is one of the only places to get a fresh Stroopwafel between Montana and Miami, outside of Dutch community celebrations. And as some Dutch people will tell you, the Stroopwafel at most grocery stores, we won't name names, just aren't quite right. I don't know what's different. Maybe the sugar or something? It's just, uh, or a different recipe. But we as Dutch people say, like, eh, it's a knockoff, <laughs> kind of. <laughs> That's Eve Tolp. She owns a Dutch grocery store in Denver called Double Dutch and said most American Stroopwafels taste different than the ones she imports. She's also seen some variations here, like a Stroopwafel with blueberry syrup, which to her doesn't count. I mean, the most that uh, at home that we do is put chocolate on it. But 
other than that, I don't, I don't think it's, yeah, I mean, it's not a muffin. <laughs> I caught up with Tulp at her store over a cup of coffee with a stroopwafel perched on the rim. We, we put it like that so it heats up a little bit. It's nice and soft. And these are from the Netherlands, like imported. He's like, real <laughs> deal, 100% butter. The steam from the coffee melts the caramel and warms the cookie, which helps bring out the flavor. In the 22 years she's been in business, Tulp has watched Stroopwafels become more popular in the United States. She thinks she knows why. There are two moments in time. <laughs> One was, um, I think Lance Armstrong started promoting it for the cyclists. The second moment was when United Airlines started serving Stroopwafels on flights back in 2016. But there are some theories on why fresh Stroopwafels are still tough to find. For one, there aren't a lot of Dutch people in the United States. A fraction of 1% of the population identifies as Dutch, according to the American Community Survey. It has to be really a Dutch person to make that, to have the desire to start making that, I think, to have the right recipe and all that. And a lot of Dutch people that come here, they have something else to do than making stroopwafels. There's also equipment. Authentic stroopwafel irons need to be imported. And it's a challenging cookie to make. You need an iron, you have to make caramel, and they don't even go in the oven. Fans of the Great British Bake Off may remember how much the bakers struggled with the stroopwafel technical challenge. Did none of you get caramel, right? Grainy. This is one I pray will work. It's probably the worst one we've seen yet. But the difficulty of production hasn't stopped people from wanting them. Google searches have been climbing since 2011. When McDonald's introduced their Stroopwafel McFlurry in 2019, online searches for Stroopwafels surged. Renee Valinga moved to Colorado from the Netherlands in 1996. He gets why Stroopwafel have become so popular. Absolutely. We like cookies, we like sweet, and we like gooey. You know, and they uh, combine all of that stuff. But after all this talk of cookies, he wants to make clear that Dutch people are not Stroopwafel obsessed. But, you know, it doesn't c- control our life on a daily basis. You know, there's passion or the, uh, you know, our love for Stroopwafels. You know, they're a great cookie and they're from the Netherlands. <laughs> That's it. And he said he's glad that Schmitz is selling fresh ones. For her part, Schmitz is happy to share not just Stroopwafels, but a piece of Dutch tradition. And that is actually why I'm here in this booth with the iron, with the caramel, uh, how to cut it, that people can see how the tradition is. And they also can smell the caramel. And taste it, too. I'm Veronica Penny, CPR News. I'm Chandra Thomas-Woodfield. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.